Well, as we begin this series, I want to ask you a very important question. I want you to think for a moment about what has influenced you most in life. Take a moment to think of where you are at today. Take a moment to think about your personality, your attitudes, your way of life, your disposition, even your circumstances in life. And I want you to think about what has been the most instrumental factor in making you who you are today and leading you to the point in life that you are today. Now, in response to that question, you may have a lot of ideas about the environment in which you were raised. You may point to your DNA. You may point to all kinds of factors that undoubtedly have an impact on your life and shape who you are. But there's one thing that shapes your life far beyond anything else, and that is your knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer, in a very popular, very famous saying, put it this way, and I want to read to you a lengthy section because he states it so well. He says this, quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Now, in choosing a topic for a men's study such as this, certainly if we would poll the audience and ask what is most needed in your life today, there would be some common answers. I need help with my marriage. I need help with my family. My family's falling apart or I lack the wisdom that I need to raise my teenagers. Or it would be questions about work, how to work in an increasingly hostile culture. Or perhaps it would be questions related to anger or lust or a myriad of other sins that plague so many men. And often the response would be, Well, we need to study those things. I need help for my soul immediately. 
Well, what we want to establish right from the very, very beginning is that there is no more practical topic and no more necessary topic than the topic of God and his character. As A.W. Tozer so well stated, nothing will have such an impact both in the immediate term and in the long term as your understanding of God and whether that understanding is actually consistent in some analogous way to how God has revealed himself to be. And if your understanding of God and everyone in this room has an understanding of God, everyone in this room is a theologian, if your understanding of God is is devoid of the truth and is built on your imagination and fancies, that is what explains why you are in the state that you are in today. But if your understanding of God has been increasingly conformed to the image that is presented and revealed to us in his word, that also will explain the stability and the joy and the contentment that you are increasingly experiencing in your life. You see, the problem isn't that we need more books on these other issues. The reality is we don't need more seminars, really, on how to mortify sin. We can find those pretty easily. And we've all heard many lessons on that topic. But what we really need at every time in our life, at every point, and in response to any challenge and every need of the soul is a better, more clearer, more faithful understanding of the character of God. Mark Jones, in his devotional book on the attributes of God, called God Is, states it this way. He says, quote, the doctrine of God has fallen on hard times. Many are far more concerned about personal salvation than they are about God. Books on marriage abound, but books on the doctrine of God are few and far between. This is regrettable since nothing can ever really make sense to us in this life unless we have a good grasp of who God is. So I can say this without a shadow of a doubt, with all certainty, that the need for us right now in this room, the need for my own soul, is for us to study the character of God. But with that said, let's probe that a little bit deep, more deeply. Why should we study the character of God? Let's think about that. Why devote this next season, every Wednesday night from now in, until May, why spend so much time on what we're calling the perfections or the attributes of God? What will it do? Why is it so important? Why study God? First of all, we study God to know who God is because it is the greatest of all priorities. To know God is the greatest of all priorities. The knowledge of God is a matter of what we can call ultimacy. The most important thing that we can ever give our minds to is the knowledge of God. 
Certainly, there are other things that occupy our thoughts, and they must. We must supply for our families. We must be responsible. We must be responsible in our culture, in our society. We must be responsible with our families. We have duties and obligations that relate to that. Yes, we all understand that. But ultimately, there is nothing so ultimate as the knowledge of God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, states it like this. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Or consider the words of the great preacher Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Solomon, who had been given so much wisdom and yet as a sad testimony to the frailty of man shows how that wisdom was squandered. And the book of Ecclesiastes gives his testimony of how he did seek worldly wisdom and how he did seek worldly wealth and how he did seek women and the pleasures of this world. And he believed for a while that those were the things that were ultimate. And yet we see him through the book of Ecclesiastes reduced time and time and time again to say, Vanity. Vanity. Vanity about worldly wealth. Vanity about fame and social standing. Vanity about physical pleasure. Vanity about the world's wisdom. And he comes at the end of that testimony. And he says this in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and this is a conclusion that all of us are are familiar with, but so many of us only understand in principle but not in practice, because many of us are still further forward in the book of Ecclesiastes. But Solomon says this, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is Fear God. Fear God. And what Solomon means there by fear God is not some kind of of ancient polytheistic or pantheistic pagan religious idea of fear where you're fearing fate and you're fearing the unknown. What Solomon means here is a fear that has its understanding of the one of whom fear is to be held. Fear God. That is the conclusion to all of these things. In the 1500s, 16th century, John Calvin captured this idea in a catechism that he wrote for children. In 1542, he wrote this catechism for the Church of Geneva, and the opening questions and the answers that he provides are so helpful here. He writes this as the first question. 
what is the chief end of man? His first answer is, it is to know God, his creator. The second question is, what reason have you for this answer? The answer to that question is, because God has created us and placed us in this world that he may be glorified in us. And it is certainly right, as he is the author of our life, that it should advance his glory. The third question then reads, what is the chief good of man? And his answer to that is, it is the same thing, i.e., to know God. Now think of this, back in 1542, this is when Calvin is teaching young children this truth. And yet, how often we who have lived in this world for so long and have experienced so many of the things that Solomon describes in the book of Ecclesiastes still would fail to give the answers to these ultimate questions. Similarly, the Westminster Shorter Catechism captures the same idea in its first question. It reads, what is the chief end of man? What is the most important thing that is to drive our life and determine our direction? The answer to that is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Indeed, it is a matter of ultimacy. It is a matter of ultimacy, and we must go through this study because it is so easy for us and our desires and our priorities to wander. So easy for us to confess with our mouths that this is important, and yet to live in our lives something else. It is a matter of ultimacy. Secondly, when we consider why study God We must remember that to know God is the essence of salvation. It is the very essence of salvation. It is what salvation is all about. The knowledge of God is a a matter of orthodoxy. It is a matter of orthodoxy. In fact, we can put it this way, that if you would describe all those who are not children of God, all those who are not saved, who have not eternal life, whose sins have not been forgiven, we could use biblical terminology and say they do not know God. As much as they may opine about God, as much as they may philosophize about God, if they are not saved, they do not know God. The Scriptures reveal this, for example, about the Jews themselves. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22 God says, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. You could look at Romans chapter 10 verse 3 as well, where in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, you you see the Jews being described as those who have a zeal for righteousness but do not know the ways of God. The Gentiles are no different. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, we see a a description there of those among the Gentiles who are not saved, 
And they're described as being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now notice that what we often describe as the essence of lostness, the impurity, the greediness, the sensuality, is really but the consequence of something far more serious. Their foolishness. They do not know God. But you flip that around and you say, what is the solution then? The solution then to the lost state is the knowledge of God. In some of the most poignant words on the topic, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3, he describes salvation in this way. He says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He is the only true God And salvation or eternal life is described as that personal knowledge of him. We could look into the Psalms. It's a frequent theme in the Psalms that salvation is the knowledge of Yahweh. Take, for example, Asaph in Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26. We have the same idea of this salvific knowledge. Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And we read in Psalm 73 that that's not just wishful thinking on Asaph's part. No, he too went through a a, a set of circumstances which, which rocked him to the core And what changed all that was when he came into the presence of God, when he entered the throne room of God and was reminded of the knowledge of God. And that made all the difference. Indeed, eternal life, salvation, is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's not just the promise of escape from wrath, eternal life. It's not just the promise of that. It is Life with God, it is knowing God. Matthew Henry in his commentary on John 17 verse 3 said this, To know Him as our Creator and to love Him, obey Him, submit to Him and trust Him as our owner, ruler, and benefactor, to devote ourselves to Him as our sovereign Lord, to depend upon Him as our chief good and direct all to His praise as our highest end, This is eternal life. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon entitled God Glorified in the Work of Redemption, describes it similarly. He says this, quote, God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession of and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. 
God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they rise to rise at the end of the world. That is God. And in fact, one of the ways that we can discern in another whether a a person really has come to saving faith is to ask them, what is eternal life? Why do you love the gospel? What's important to you about the promise of eternal life? And if they say, I receive God as their answer, you know they're thinking in the right direction. Indeed, to know God is the essence of salvation. Number three, to know God is a prerequisite, the prerequisite for true worship. The knowledge of God is a matter of what we call doxology, the right worship of God. And again, in this world, it is not difficult to find people who will talk much about worship and will do much about worship and will sacrifice much for worship. They'll go on great expeditions for the sake of worship. But what is worship? Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 23 to 24, that worship is predicated on a very important expectation. Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him Get this, must worship in spirit and in truth. That is so important to understand that that we catch the reverse of of what that means. And Mark Jones has, has captured this well with a statement when he says, Worship without knowledge is idolatry. Worship without knowledge is idolatry. And, and you can think about trying to create the right aura, to have the right music, to create the right environmental factors so that you have the right feel and you have the liberty of expression. And so many people get caught up with those things. But if all of that is done with the wrong knowledge of God, it is idolatry. It is not glorifying to the Lord. But what is at the base, what is the prerequisite for true worship is a true understanding of who God is. And as one's true knowledge of God increases, so does the intensity and the purity of that worship. You know, you may come on Sunday mornings and you may say, wow, it's, you know, I I just, I, I would like a different environment. I I would like more upbeat music or, you know, I'd like some drums on the stage or this and that. And I wish the environment was more conducive to expression and so on and so forth. Well, you're not going to find the answer to what your soul is searching for in those things. What is the great ignition for true, authentic worship will be a deeper, more profound understanding of who God really is. 
Think of that, for example, even with respect to prayer. And you may say, well, I struggle in my prayer life. Well, here also is the answer. It's part of worship. You can always tell those who know God by how they pray. Jay Packer captures this when he says this, people who know their God are before anything else people who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. If, however, there is in us little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know God. So you may have been one of those even at the very beginning when I asked you the question, you know, what, what's going on in your life? You might have said, well, I need a, I need a, a session on prayer. And certainly there is a, a large need for teaching on prayer all the time, but there's something that is more important than teaching on the mechanics of prayer, and that is teaching on the character of God. Jonathan Edwards, once again, as as he described the, the, the impetus for worship, put it in these words. He said this, quote, Spiritual delight in God. That's worship. Spiritual delight in God arises chiefly from His beauty and perfections and not from the blessings which He gives. Think of that. That your most fervent worship of Him and delighting in who He is and the expression of your adoration is not going to be fueled by mostly and and most importantly by all the blessings that you may be waiting for or expecting or even that you've experienced. The greatest, most fervent worship will always come from a greater understanding of His beauty and His perfections. Number four, why study God? Number four, to know God is the motivation for godliness. To know God is the motivation for godliness. The knowledge of God is a matter of what we can call orthopraxy, right living, right practice. And again, when we talk about things like the pursuit of holiness, perhaps what comes into your mind when you hear that is a whole list of do's and don'ts, a checklist of the things that you must do and the things that you must not do. And so much of our understanding of godliness can gravitate to these lists. But once again, the best motivation for godliness, the best drive or engine for growth in holiness is a knowledge of God. Back in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18 verse 13 We read this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Notice how he equates those two things. If you do one, the other comes automatically. And you may be saying, I I want to hate evil in my life. I struggle with it all the time. How do I do that? Well, Solomon says, fear the Lord. Know the Lord. Grow in that awesome reverence, that affectionate reverence by which you humbly bow and, and bow carefully and, and with, with bankruptcy in your soul before the Lord. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. In Proverbs chapter 14 verse 2, and notice the connection once again, he who walks 
in his uprightness, fears the Lord. Notice the consequence here. It's not that walking in uprightness is what will make you fear the Lord. It is what comes as a result of fearing the Lord. He who walks is one who fears. You have come to a a deeper beholding of God's perfections, his greatness, his incomprehensibility, his goodness, his mercy, his love. And as a result, you walk in uprightness. Practical godliness, true practical godliness, the kind that we all want, we desire, we long for, is going to be the natural response to a true knowledge of God And that practical godliness will grow in direct proportion to the accurate, faithful understanding of God that we develop in our minds. You see, personal conduct is always a reflection of essential beliefs about God. That's why we say at its heart, sin is disbelief. At the very basis, sin is disbelief. It is anti-knowledge, sin is. And so when we talk about things like anger and lust and worry and envy, greed, immorality, abusive speech, all of those things in one way or another arise from false thoughts about God. Think of that. So you think back over the sin that you committed this week or today. Your problem, maybe you don't think of what caused that, but what really stands behind that is disbelief. Sin is disbelief. There is some faulty knowledge of God or resistance against the true knowledge of God. And that is what sets you up for these vices. At the same time, you think of things like contentment in life. We all want that. Patience servanthood, gentleness, love, purity, all of these things likewise ultimately spring from right thinking, true thinking about who God is. And again, the problem with many is that we earnestly desire an end to the sinful practices, the consequences of sin in our life. We we earnestly long to be done with it. We long to put these things off, and we look upon virtue with, with this esteem, and, and we want to experience it, and yet we so often fail to embrace the right path from the one to the other. We'll fill our lives with all kinds of checklists, all kinds of efforts, all kinds of things that come from our own strength and we, we fail to comprehend that at the base of it all, at the foundation, what we need most is a new and truer view of God. Again, quoting from J.I. Packer, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. But the reverse is also true. Give your life to the study of God's character, to the study of his perfections. And it won't be like you're blundering through life blindfolded. 
in a, in a most amazing and beautiful way as you are focused on the glory of the one who is infinitely worthy, you will find yourself doing those things that you sought so hard to do under your own strength but never could. It comes through the knowledge of God. Finally, number five, why study God? To know God is the foundation for ministry. The knowledge of God is is the foundation for ministry. Whether bringing the gospel to unbelievers or building one another up in the precious faith that we have, it is all based upon knowledge. The knowledge of God is a matter of service. And, and we see this in such a simple statement like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul says it this way, Therefore, knowing, having come to know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The, the greatest motivation for evangelism is not going to be a new study of the needs of the lost will be the greatest fire to light you up, to, to get you speaking the gospel to your co-workers and your family members, is, is not going to be a, a, a deeper study of the image of God in man and how there's inherent worth in, in that sinner. That's not going to motivate you, but what will motivate you is the fear of the Lord. And as Paul says, as you fear the Lord, you come to that knowledge of God, that growing ever-purifying knowledge of God, the persuading of men will come naturally. We could put it this way, all of ministry, all of the service that we do from the stacking of chairs to the cleaning of carpets to the serving of, of water to, to, the, to the taking care of children to the teaching and Sunday school groups and Bible studies, all of that can be summarized by one word. It's the word love. Ministry is, is love. And with that in mind, we turn to a text like 1 John 4, verses 7 to 8, which captures this very well, where, where John says, Beloved, let us love one another. There's, there's the ministry. Let us love one another, for love is from God. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if you feel that your ministry is weak, your motivation for ministry is lacking, you know you should be doing something more, you just don't know how to go about doing it, or perhaps you just look at the church with a degree of apathy. The solution to that is not to whip you up into some kind of fervor to try and stack chairs. Ultimately, what will help you most will be to give you a true understanding of God. Now, with all of that said, we come to a second question, and that is then, how must we study God? This is important for our introduction. We can see clearly Scripture gives us these very important reasons for why we must study God. It is an issue of ultimacy, and to know God is the essence of salvation. It's the prerequisite for, 
for worship. It's motivation for godliness. It's the foundation for ministry. We understand that now. So how do we go about studying God? We're going to do that over the months to come, 20 sessions. But there are some important guardrails to keep in mind as as we consider the process of studying the character of God. This is of such ultimacy that we cannot approach it frivolously. We have to think. We have to come to the topic correctly. And so let me give you another five principles here for how we must study God. Number one, we must commit to studying God through his revelation. We are to study God through his revelation. Our greatest problem is not that we deny the existence of God. Everyone knows there is a God. Even the atheists do. They know there is a God, and God has even said that his His testimony has been clear from the foundation of the world. And it's been the unbeliever's lifelong ambition to suppress that truth in ungodliness. But everyone knows that God exists. But the issue is the fabrication of that God according to our own image. Now we can set aside the unbeliever for a moment. We must recognize that even in our own thinking... As Christians, as the redeemed, we still struggle with this huge issue. We can, we can talk much about God. We can, we can pour our lives into it. But the issue is, what has formed, what has fabricated those ideas of God that you have in your head? Where have they come from? There are many, many errant ways that even Christians can be involved in. You see, we're prone to think of him just that he's just like us, only better. That's our default position. It's this homardiological hangover, you could call it, that we still have the toxins of our former life still coursing through our veins. We have this tendency to want to project ourselves onto God and say, he is like us, but he's better than us. And what a wrong answer that is. Psalm 50, verse 21, after the psalmist describes Yahweh's speech about those who are foolish and do not know him, Yahweh then says this, the psalmist records, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. That's our problem. That's our problem. And even as we go through this series and as you engage in the discussion in your groups, this is going to be the big challenge. You're going to be tempted to describe God according to your own self and just make him better. One example of this is from a Yale theologian by the name of Nicholas Walterstorff. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that comes out of Ivy League schools, ivory towers, theologians in those places. Just see how he has created an 
an idol of God according to himself. He writes this in response to the idea, in response to the assertion that God can only speak truth. It's a quality of God. He can never lie. And in response to that assertion, Walter Storff says this, I don't myself find obvious that God should assert only what is true. Why should God not accommodate God's self to us by sometimes asserting what is helpful in our particular situation, even though it is not strictly speaking true? Parents do this sort of thing all the time and are praiseworthy for doing it. What Walter Storff is engaging here is he's extrapolating from what he believes is true and right and, and good and just and is saying, I want a God who is like that just better at it. And it's idolatry. So what are the dangers that we must encounter and, and we must resist along the way as, as we study, as we answer this question, how must we study God? Let me give you some dangers that are, are always lurking. First of all, the danger of intuition. The danger of intuition. Developing a knowledge of God through what seems right. It's a, it's a theology of the gut. The gut feeling. I talked to somebody this week in a counseling situation. And that person told me that that person's response to this particular problem in life was such and such a response because that just feels right in terms of what God does. It's intuition to what seems right. There's the danger of experience. A knowledge of God through my experience is developing that picture of God in our minds uh, that's based on our experiences, our experiences in the world, the injustices that we've faced or perhaps the good things that we've encountered, the blessings or the hardships. We look over all of those things. We look behind us as to what has, has happened in our lives. We look ahead of us to what we want to experience in our lives, and we construct a God based on those things. There's the problem of speculation. This one is rife in academic circles. It's developing a knowledge of God through philosophical or rational deduction where you use the Bible as a kind of trampoline to go in a certain direction and begin to to deduce from that over and over and extrapolate this syllogism after that syllogism after this syllogism until you've created a God of your own logic. There's also the danger of mysticism of seeking to put yourself in that kind of really special situation. Perhaps it's out in the desert, deprived of food and comfort, and then in the midst of that deprivation, getting into this mystical, contemplative idea, and from that thinking that you will come to know God. Whole strands within the religions of this world have been devoted to that. All of these things emphasize One thing, man as the source, man as the innovator, man as the discoverer, man as the guardian of this knowledge, and it's idolatry. But we must remember in our study that the knowledge of God is revealed. 
It's not discovered through some great expedition, some great contemplative exercise. The knowledge of God is declared. It is not conceived of in our mind. God has not just given us some building blocks, thrown them out there and said to us, now you build a picture of me. The knowledge of God is declared. God's self-disclosure through his word, serves not only as the starting point, but as the whole sum and substance of what we can know truly. Joel Beakey puts it this way, We do not discover the knowledge of God, we receive it. Too often we can be like some theologians who conjure up deep thoughts of God that are only a product of our own imaginations. Rather, we must receive what God has revealed about himself in his word with childlike faith. So my exhortation is going to be to you as you engage in this journey and engage in the discussions and your own personal study, commit yourself to forming an understanding of God that is thoroughly and truly biblical. Number two, how must we study God? We must study him in cautious humility Our greatest need here is a profound dose of fear, what the biblical writers call fear. We become so cavalier in our discussion of a God that it's lost its profundity. What we need is fear. We need to be like Job, who after the assertions that he made about how God should act, God appears to him in the whirlwind, and at the very end we have this humble confession. He says in Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He goes on to quote Yahweh and and, and he quotes him as saying, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He quotes Yahweh again, Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you instruct me. And then he says this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, man, we must rigorously, vigilantly guard against exalting our own reasoning capacities and guard against exalting our own reasoned conclusions. Can we know God? Yes. And in our third session or segment of this study, we'll talk about the knowability of God. But before we can get to the knowability of God, we must first focus, as we will next week, on the incomprehensibility of God. That He cannot be confined to our minds. We are like earthworms, looking upon a human being and seeking to explain to other earthworms what the human being is like, what he thinks, how he acts, and why he does what he does. And you take that and times that by infinity. That is the difference. John Owen says this, We may suppose that we have here attained great knowledge, clear and high thoughts of God, but alas... When he shall bring us into his presence, we shall cry out, We never knew him as he is, the thousandth part of his glory and perfect 
and blessedness never entered into our hearts. A thousand. Gerald Bray says it this way, there is much about God that we do not and cannot know. The theology of God's attributes is therefore both a confident expression of faith and a humble admission of ignorance in line with the nature and content of God's disclosure to us. We're so thankful God has revealed himself, but as we approach that revelation, let us tremble. Number three, we must study God with an insatiable desire. This is what we need. We must be like the psalmist in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. And for some of you, what is needed is to train adoration on the right object. You you may not lack the ability to desire things, but the problem is you've been desiring the wrong things. But for others... What is needed is to even learn something more basic. It is to learn how to desire. And hopefully this study will ignite that and teach you how to desire. Number four, how we must study God. We must study Him for personal transformation. This is what the Puritans called experimental religion. Not experimental because they were trying to test the truthfulness of hypotheses. That's not why they called it experimental religion. They called it experimental religion because they believed that everything that is true, everything that God has said, everything about himself has an impact on life. All theology is practical. And even the theology of God himself. And so, let me ask you as we start this study, what is the goal that you have for this study? Ask yourself, what do I intend to do with it? What do I intend to do with it? How one answers these questions will will determine the difference between simply learning about God and learning God. Our desire here is not to allow knowledge to puff you up, but rather to see this knowledge transform your lives, to show you how the knowledge of God's holiness does affect your marriage, how the knowledge of God's omnipotence and sovereignty affects how you work, the knowledge of God's immutability, how it impacts your personal faith. It is to see life transformed A.W. Pink said that something more than a theoretical knowledge of God is needed by us. God is only truly known in the soul as we yield ourselves to him, submit to his authority, and regulate all the details of our lives by his holy precepts and commandments. Finally, why must or how must we how must we study God? And this is what brings us back to the very beginning of our study this evening the issue of ultimacy. How must we study God? We are to study God for His glory's sake. You see, often as we read the biblical testimony and pour over various verses, the point of the passage isn't to provide some kind of key for our lives. Three keys to better parenting or five keys to a happier marriage or 
10 keys to living single. I don't know. We, we sometimes are always looking for that special practical application, and we're discontent if we don't find it. But let's recognize this, that the point of the biblical text is not always to give practical application. Often the point of the biblical text is to leave us speechless. Think of Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36. And when you look at that text, our minds should not wander to, okay, how does this help my marriage? Or how does this help my struggle with this issue or that issue? The purpose of this text is to bring us into God's glory, to take ourselves out of the picture and to see only Him. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. And when you read that text, you don't find one single first-person pronoun. It's all about God. It's all about recognizing that He is ultimate and that our greatest purpose in life is to step closer and closer to that reality and to give Him the glory that He is infinitely worthy of. And may that be how we study God in the year to come. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess our need. We confess to you the plethora of inappropriate and inaccurate thoughts that we hold when we think of you. We confess to you how we have placed so many other things as ultimate in our life ahead of you. We confess our struggle. We confess the fact that even though we know these things to be true, that you are ultimate You are our chief end, even though we know that to be true, that we live such different lives in practice. So, Father, we have turned to this topic in recognition of its ultimacy. And we pray that you would guide us in this journey, that you would ever draw our thoughts away from our pitiful selves and attract them more faithfully and firmly on your character. May you become that which, in which our hearts can rest. May that be our destination, our peace, our joy, 
And along the way, we are so thankful that ultimately what is most important is not even that we know you. But what is important is that you and your mercy and grace have condescended to know us. And we rest in that wonderful reality. But pray that you would increase our knowledge of you. And we do this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.